This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player Two episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. We're exploring chapter 0005. And as we enter this chapter, we went from the cliffhanger of teleporting out of where Parzival was and now teleporting into the basement of Og's childhood home on planet Middletown. And of course, what he's here to do is to address this claim of having the first shard found by Lohengrin. And sure enough, he's there, and Lohengrin's there as well, sort of adorned in a Legend of Billie Jean Attire-esque sort of outfit, but also somewhat preoccupied or predisposed. Engaged, one might say. Engaged, even. And it is this point that we recognize something that we had seen before, which is when Parzival was in class on Ludus. Mm-hmm. And he was not paying attention to class uh, in advance of class starting. And he himself was in the basement with H and a number of other folks waiting for school to start. So in this situation, we recognize that Lohengrin is somewhere. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it off to you. Drag me through this. Let's pull through and hit some of these points in this chapter. Because I've got a lot to say, but I want to I let you guide through this. What is the first point that we're going to hit on? As far as this chapter goes, we get a little bit more background that we kind of already knew about where he is now. So this is where the first gate of the first contest was, and Mm -hmm. he's in Og's childhood home, which was, uh, like James Halliday's home, knocked down for other development. In in this case, it was for condominiums. I believe Halliday's childhood home was knocked down for a strip mall, and of course, recreated in loving detail. Right. We're looking at we're looking at late 80s. We're talking about wood walls, like board walls, right? Like that whole tongue and groove yeah, wood that, kind of look, right? Ugly, yeah. And with like the orange carpets that are purposefully orange, not not just because somebody spilled some crap on them, like just your 80s tacky home basement hangout space. And I it, I grew up in that space. That was my basement. Granted it was like, well no, it was the 80s. It was late 80s. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd related directly to this. We had the big wooden television with the big dial, real thick, right? And it had the, the VCRs on top of it. It had the Atari connected to it through the little black dongle with oh, the yeah. little the shift switch on it. Oh, my God. 
when that shit would come loose, you'd have to get a screwdriver to, to screw it down a little bit tighter to the antenna. All of that, that, that speaks to me very heavily. So it just reminded me of my basement. He refers to all the equipment in Og's basement, mm-hmm. which includes an RCA television, half buried by a Betamax VCR, a Pioneer LaserDisc player, and several classic home video game consoles. Yeah, that LaserDisc player was like shit maybe schools would have, right? Yeah, but like LaserDisc, I don't remember seeing those pop up until the 90s. Oh, no, LaserDisc was much earlier than the... It was? Well, I don't say much earlier. It was earlier than the 90s, yeah. But, like, we're not talking about CDs. We're talking about LaserDiscs. Like, they look like freaking records. Yeah, I remember seeing those being thrown into LaserDisc players when I was in maybe high school, maybe middle school. One of those two. Yeah. And I just remember those things were, like, these big fucking metal wafers. It's just like, this seems stupid, but... It was like a technology that didn't catch, right? It was it was like the Betamax. It was just it was a format that didn't it existed, people supported it, but it didn't win. It didn't catch. I mean, Og's basement is like a museum of tech that didn't catch. <laughs> well, and that gives you an idea from from the point of view of even if we're getting a little bit of backstory into Og, it, it at least accentuates the fact or the personality that he was steeped in a wide range of media. And I like this sort of momentary backstory about a given character, that the artifacts within the room, we are, as we're exploring this book, we are explorers. We are archaeologists, right? That's what this book is doing, is they're saying, you know, here, here are some people in history, and you're, you're an archaeologist exploring their history as they've laid it out for you. And we're kind of going through these, these time capsules, like archaeologists. And it's just kind of cool that as an author, there would be this, you know, of course, it would have this technology, you know, nestled on top of this television or, or burying this television. Uh, because, you know, Og would have been just as steeped in media. And that makes sense because of the position that he held. Anyways, continue. It obviously sounds very familiar to H's basement chat room. Parzival does kind of make the connection that it reminded him a lot about being in H's basement. And spending time there, talking, gaming, doing homework, things like that. And I kind of love these little references to the first book, just because the first book just will always have that special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. So to reference those, like it makes me want to read that book again. And I, this is the longest I've gone without reading Ready Player One. Because I'm just like, I want to be laser focused here. Yeah, I know that feeling. So he does make an interesting point here. Because after he's reminiscing about being in H's uh, basement chat room, he says, My life had been a lot harder back then. But in retrospect, it now also seems a hell of a lot simpler. A hell of a lot simpler. We've been talking about what Parzival's life is like now compared to what it used to be and what he might actually kind of wish it would be. He's really in a dark place right now. He's lost all of his friends. He doesn't really have the motivation that he had before. This is kind of the first time we actually really get a sense of him recognizing that even though his life had been a lot harder, that it may have actually been easier than what he's got now. I think this exemplifies the fact that money doesn't make life easier. I mean, you might think it does, and maybe to a certain degree, it kind of does. But after a certain point, 
after you go beyond that, what you recognize is that it takes you into another level of difficulty, right? A whole other level of things that you've got to deal with. You question the sincerity of your friends and family, how you end up spending that money on yourself. How do you, inv- if there's it, money sometimes amplifies your small problems into much larger problems. It's one of the reasons why people who win the lotto in grand ways often either blow through it incredibly fast uh, or it ends up killing them and destroying their lives because it, it doesn't simplify life. It brings you into a whole other level of complexity that you've got to figure out how to deal with. And it isn't a level of complexity that you can just throw money at to make things better. I will say, though, I wish I had that problem. Uh, I... I don't know. I don't know. For that For that reason, for that reason, you know, I don't know. I'm sure everyone who wins the lotto thinks, oh, yeah, I'll be able to handle it, right? Oh, that's going to solve. That, that's a problem I'd love to have. But at the end of the day, money is, an, is a means to maybe helping you find fulfillment in life, but it is not fulfillment in life. No, but it sure as hell would make a lot of things easier. And pay your bills. It's just pay your bills. That's fine. And it, come, and it comes with its own overhead. Honestly, its own problems. if somebody came in and paid off my student loans for me, I'd be kind of happy about that. Well, I don't think that's the jump we're talking about in life-changing funds, right? I but I you. feel you. That like, would be nice to have that load counts. off my shoulders too. But I think the fact that, you know, when you're younger, you only have to think about yourself. When you're a teenager, you're thinking about your relationship with your friends, with your parents. There's a bit of a game there. But when you get older, you're not just thinking about yourself. Now you've found that special somebody. Maybe you've had some kids. You realize your decisions are above and beyond just you. You can't just think about yourself. It starts to get very complex. And if you're running a business, now you can't just think about your family and surviving when things get tough. You got to think about all the people that you've employed that are working for you, that need rely on you to feed their family. Yeah, it gets complicated pretty fast. I would imagine. So he looks over at Lohengrin. Ivatar eyes are closed, but darting around as if she was in REM sleep. So Parzival is about to make himself visible when he realizes that Lohengrin's avatar is otherwise engaged and wants to find out what's going on. Gotcha. Yeah, she's, she's occupied. Yeah. And you know what? He it, hap- it just so happens he can figure out what she's occupied by. He obviously recognizes that that she's in a private chat room. And rather easily, he's like, yeah, I'm going to just hop in. I'm going to follow in the footsteps of my buddy or my former buddy, the great and powerful Og, and uh, do some snooping. Some snooping around. Snooper's got to snoop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So he ends up in this this chat room, Cyberdelia. Mm-hmm. which is a multi-level warehouse space. He goes into describing the decor and what's around, sees the words, hack the planet. And then the song comes up and he realizes where he is. He's in the underground cyberpunk nightclub featured in the 1995 film Hackers, which I believe this club was called Cyberdelia. Mm-hmm. I'm really wondering what, took Parzival so damn long to figure out that Cyberdelia was this recreation of this nightclub from this film. Why did it have to be this song? 
that triggered his memory and not the name Cyberdelia or Hack the Planet or just the description of the space in general. Like, it, to me, this shows that he's not seeing the forest for the trees. He's, like, he's not seeing the simple that's right in front of him. It was called Cyberdelia for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. How do you not know that that's Cyberdelia of the Nightclub from that movie? And hack, I mean, and if it wasn't there, why not when he sees the words hack the planet? Well, I think that it's perfectly understandable to come into it. First off, it, 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 people are using names for rooms doesn't necessarily define the room. I mean, for all we know, there could be 30 places called Cyberdelia and only one of them actually is a recreation from the movie. I mean, for all we know, for all we know, it's I would not assume it based on the name. But to come in and then to be in the midst of a warehouse... And depending on where you are in the warehouse, it may not look at all like what you saw in the movie because the movie only had a handful of vantage points to view the the space, right? But then to look around and you see a whole hacker planet on the wall and then Cowgirl ends up, you know, kicking up into the background music. Very cool. When I read this, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I know exactly where we are. And granted, I didn't know it was called Cyberdelia. I don't think that it was mentioned anywhere in the movie that it's called Cyberdelia. Not that I remember, at least. So that was news to me. But us is also 1995, and we don't know if this was really included in Halliday's list of loves. So for all we know, it wasn't. Oh, so you're saying that it may not be canon as far as the the almanac is concerned. Right. And we saw a lot of references in the almanac. A majority of them were, we were talking like 70s and 80s. Yeah. No, you're right? right. Very little of it bleeds over into the 90s. Some of it, but not a lot. 95 is, well, you know, by the numbers, pretty deep into the 90s. One might say somewhere in the middle. So at least. At least somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but I, this, this was, at the time, one of my favorite movies. And I listened to the soundtrack almost religiously for a good six months. Like, that was all I listened to. Loved the soundtrack. Now, unfortunately, the movie gets dated pretty fast. I mean, just within a matter of years. The technology, you're well past it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're well past this modem. Yeah. yeah. You're well past this modem that they're talking about. And, and uh, risk architecture is going to change everything. And, I do not remember. How it many bots were there? It was something modem? like 96 or 14 for. Four, yeah, fourteen like four or, or something, something along the lines, like right? You could tap it, out more code yeah, quicker. But than I mean, that. It, it's just the way that they portrayed programming and the way that they portrayed code. It was very metaphorical, and it was very sort of stylistic. Like, how can you make coding cool? And there was there's a huge divergence between the reality of coding, which is sitting in front of a screen just reading lines lines that just don't make sense at all versus you know your girlfriend running around with the sword in the background and paper flying off of the printer and you know swirls of of code in this you know fluid hyper realistic environment three dimensionalized uh, you know, it, it was just cool. It was just neat how they stylized that, how they took uh, some rather boring concepts and made them visualized. I, I, I loved it. So would you say that it would be worth it for me who has not seen this movie to... Whoa, stop. You've not seen this movie? I have not seen Hackers. <sighs> and I checked. It's not on anything. It's not on any of my streaming services right now. 
How many streaming services do you have? Enough. More than enough. I'd say this is worth it. And here's the reason why. When we talk about inspiring, the idea of uh, using code in a sort of a, a, a more punk socialized way, a sort of shared environment, shared social way, this, this sort of predates that. It created sort of a, a unity amongst those who were in the know. You're talking about people whom were really kind of on the edge, the, your, your digital cowboys, if you will. Like, I'm not over-exaggerating this. I first got my break in software development by going to the CEO of the company that I was working for, and at the time I was selling cigars, to telling him that I could do what that last guy he hired did who left the company. And then he put me in there to work on software. Like, there, was, there weren't classes to do this stuff, to do HTML, right, to do style sheets, to any of this. There weren't college courses for this. You were teaching yourself this stuff. So it, it was very much on the edge. And I don't know, this movie just kind of pops that out and makes it seem cool. But, you know, a good part of the movie also dealt with this sort of virtual reality, you know, that the main company that is, you know, sinking the oil ships based on this Ooh, virus spoilers. that these hackers are being accused of. Yeah, well, you know what? <laughs> it's You've had time. You've had time. These are, these are, you deserve these spoilers. This is a punishment. But the company that deals with this, like the, the guys that are maintaining their framework, you have, you, you come into like the server room and it's like stacks of glass with little blinking dots and little zips running around. Like it's not like a server room like you'd imagine. It's, it's this, you know, getting into it has this sort of visual flying through a city of servers and then going into a room and then drilling down into a file. And it's just, it's just cool. It's just, I mean, it's the most inefficient way to get to information. Like it, it sounds like this would be cool, but it's a bit like that one gal in Jurassic Park where they tried to visualize where the files were when she's in the computer. Oh yeah. Trying to it, hack it, the totally computer. inefficient. Totally inefficient way. <laughs> And I, I, I use this, this same example uh, in many, many episodes ago, but in the movie Disclosure, which had a virtual reality element to it, uh-huh. you know, you're wearing a glove and you're on like a, a platform that changes the landscape for you. And you are literally like flipping through virtual file cabinets looking for stuff. It's like, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? Yeah, like the, like the system was designed to be like like somehow going to a tactile means of finding and organizing. It, it's you might as well just put shit in a in a metal cabinet then. Like there's no nostalgia in that bullshit. Anyhow, back to point though. Like if you're gonna see a movie, that's that's a good one. Like we've seen some crap movies, and don't oh. get me wrong, you're gonna get cheesed out. But let me tell you something. It's some early Angelina Jolie. You've got Penn from Penn and Teller as one of the actors in this movie. You've got a lot of, you've actually got a lot of big names in this movie. And on top of that, the soundtrack is kicking. It's just a good movie. It's just solid. It's just, don't be wrong. Like it didn't, the technology of it didn't age very well. But, but even in being cheesed out about that, it still kind of harkens back to that time, which is, you know, neat. It's a cheesy nostalgia that you enjoy. Anyways, I digress. Anyhow, love the movie. So I was really happy to hear that, that the low five are hanging in this multi-level warehouse space that is Cyberdelia. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. 
Love, love the reference. So he's creeping around in Cyberdelia, trying to not bump into anything, because even though he's invisible, he can still have an impact on the objects in a space. And this bothered me. Because even though we know from the first book that Og was able to knock over things when he was being all invisible in the basement chat room, Mm -hmm. we know that Parzival has the power to wish for anything. And he has said that if the system can allow it, it will grant him his wish. So why not wish to be able to basically walk through matter when you're invisible? Well... I mean, he is a huge fan of Buckaroo Banzai. This should not be a foreign concept. Here's the thing. From a software development perspective, if you can go through textures, and, and that's what you're really looking at here, right? Because you're, you're creating textures. It's, it's almost like you're painting on uh, a number of uh, triangular surfaces. If you can move through textures, what keeps you from just falling through the floor? Oh, that's why you have to say, like, I want to be able to walk through... Everything but the floor. Everything but the floor? I mean, that's just, you know, it's it, it's all the same. It's all the same. Like, you're, you're interacting with these things. It's, you, you've seen movies where people are dead and they're, they're ghosts, right? But they can... They float. But how do they move? No, I'm talking about, like, where they're, like, personifications. They're, they're mm-hmm. humans, but they're, you know, anthropomorphized ghosts and like like beetlejuice for instance they're dead we're not completely helpless barbara i've been reading that book and there's a word for people in our situation ghosts but they can climb the stairs they can walk on the floors how about the movie ghost the with the demi moore and patrick swayze Mm -hmm. he can walk through walls and stuff like that but he can Climb steps, walk on the floor. You're talking about the difference between a movie versus like a video game environment that has real world physics it's trying to take into account. A movie isn't really chained to those sorts of needs for rules. But in a gaming environment where you have a degree of practicality, where you have a an environment wherein there are rules that you've got to deal with. Yeah. But that's as easy as saying, well, here's a rule I want you to follow. If it's a surface that my feet are on, Mm-hmm. It is considered solid. Okay, right? what happens when you jump? You I've, go up and then you go back down. I guess. I mean, it, I, I guess the point here is that I can see why that wouldn't be the case. But more importantly, I thought that this was an interesting throwback to the first book, which is that he did not want to give his presence away the way that Og did. Og bumped into a stack of magazines, which was a hint that somebody was in there with them while they were in their private, quote-unquote, private chat room. But it's just a glitch, man. Yeah, it must have been a glitch. Sure, yeah, and you can pass that off. But that he was careful not to touch anything. And it was kind of like, oh, okay, we know why. We know why. Now, could he wish that away? Could he change the software? Meh, I guess it's arguable. But I guess the point here is that Fog couldn't do it. Maybe he can't. I'm I'm just saying that maybe Og didn't have the ability to wish for that feature. Maybe that was a holiday thing. Maybe. Well, if it was, you know, then why wouldn't he use it? I guess the point is, if he could, he would. But if he can't... If he could, he would, but he doesn't know how. Then he's not going to say, well, I can't just walk through it. He's just going to indicate it by saying, well, I had to be careful not to bump into something to give myself away. And he's... 
He's telling us. He's telling us that he can't just walk through it. I'm just saying that, like, if it were me, mm-hmm. I'd have been like, I want to walk through anything, bitches. Hey Siri. Hey Alexa. I want to be able to walk through matter. Uh, I invisible. think you're taking the whole wishes thing too literally. You know, this is this is you know not like Aladdin's genie. This is if the system can do it, it'll help you. It, it may tell you how. It may make it available, possibly. But what if the system can't? I mean, and he's, the system he's, can certainly you know reincarnate avatars. No, it's got to have some. It's got to be able to do something. Well, but yeah, but that's something completely different. Help. Every video game nowadays has the ability to respawn. That's not unusual. Just saying. I would have asked for that. He is indicating he cannot. But while he is tiptoeing through the tulips of the club, he comes upon the low five. He does. And he can read the name tags above their heads, and their names are Castigir, Rizzo, Lilith, and Wukong. Now, I have another problem. I don't understand how you have four avatar names, and these are younger people. Like These are people that may not have even been old enough to participate in the contest the first time around because they're, they're young, but none of them have elite spelling or even like, you know, a name like Rizzo54321. You know, it's just Rizzo. It's just Lilith. It's just Wukong. It's just Castagir. No lead spellings, no nothing. And I find that hard to believe because usually the first avatar names to go kind of just the plain old, like your first name. And I'm looking here, you know, Lilith. It's the first name. Nobody got, nobody asked for Lilith and there isn't like a Lilith one, two, three, four, five, six. I mean, like, plus the Oasis public school system where that we know all five of these people went to. If somebody was named Lilith, they would have gotten that name assigned to them at the school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it would. I, I'm saying like I can't imagine nobody else thought of these names for their avatars. All right. So I, I think this is pretty straightforward. One of two things is going on here. Either you're allowed to have different. You're allowed to have the same name. So you know there might be a ton of people whose name. How do you is- log in? Is Rizzo. Well, your login isn't based on your name. It's totally not. It's it's bio triggered. It uses words. It's, you're not you're not using a login like a like a username and password. But it doesn't matter because you can have the same username as a bazillion other people. And as long as your password's different, you're good. You're golden. You know there are a million John Smiths out there, right? That that's the thing. Now, if you're talking about like an email address, well, that's a little bit different, right? The email address has to be unique. But here's the thing, though, is that if uh, and let's I'm not going to assume that everybody in the low five is is uh, clever enough or quick enough to get some real ideal names. But it is not unusual for hackers to hack into Twitter names and capture basically these sort of prize names. Right. Like what if there was only one Rizzo, only one Rizzo. Right, not Rizzo five, not Rizzo with an O, you know, a zero at the end, an actual Rizzo. You know, if somebody stole that name, and let's say that was your name, you grabbed it up before anyone else. Unique name, prime position, right? 
and then somebody stole that from you, there's a black market for buying these sort of prime names from people who steal them from other people. And you buy the name, you take over the account, and it's yours. You delete all the old content and you take it over. But you've got this cool prime name that you've paid several hundred dollars for. If you wanted, if you wanted Aaron, and I guarantee you, billionaires out there, but like, you know, let's say Twitter, for example, plenty of errands, right? If you Probably. wanted the name Aaron, as it is spelled for you, there's a, there's a chance that somebody out there has stolen it from someone named Aaron and is now has it available for you to buy, probably in the tens of thousands of dollars. No, thanks. Because what's to stop somebody from trying to steal that from me? Well, there you go. You got to be more clever than someone else, I suppose. But, but that's the gist, though. So you could have some rather elite folks who got these names before anyone else did. But I find that to be highly unlikely, given kind of the timing and how old they are and that sort of thing. I think it's more likely that anybody can choose any name they want, even if somebody else has it. If they ended up like on the scoreboard, you could have you know, two Rizzos on the scoreboard. How do you know which one's who? Um, I don't know. Do you, like, I don't know of any service that, that you know, even if you your login credentials are based on your email address that, and you have to create a username that you can't, you have still have to have a unique username. Well, that's, I don't know of any that don't. Well, it, a lot of times it's based on email address and email address is going to be unique, but we are talking about a time in the future where your, your bio recognitions, your bio signature is unique, your unique login. You'll notice he's not typing in a password. He's not using his name to log in. You know, he uses a phrase that he speaks. Why wouldn't Parzival, like Parzival couldn't, he, he went through a whole process of choosing his name mm-hmm. and he ended up with Parzival because he couldn't do these other names because they were taken. Well, maybe it wasn't that he couldn't do the other names. I mean, for all we know, he just saw that those were names that were already being used and he wanted something more original. You know, a spin on it, a, a sort of a nested reference within the name i don't know that sounds um a little too convenient well what we do know here is that we've got some individuals with names that probably wouldn't be considered very original which leads me to believe that you don't have to have an original name in this game and uh, you know a system that's exactly like that facebook if i do a search for aaron's given your last name i'm gonna find tons now, does that prevent you from logging into Facebook? No, it does not, because that's got nothing to do with your login. Does it make it difficult for somebody to find you? Yeah, maybe, if there's a ton of people with your name. Yeah, but it's it's still attached to a... Like, you can have a unique URL with Facebook, mm-hmm. and you can't have that point to multiple users. There's going to be some distinction there. Well, sure. And there was a time where you could use your name to capture your URL which I did, but that doesn't matter because when I do a search for you, I'm still going to find a ton of people using your name in the system, even if the URL isn't the same, which it wouldn't be. But you're not going by URL. You're going by name. So we're not saying the name equals that two people with the same name are the same in the Oasis. I think it's very much like Facebook. Two people can have the same name, but that doesn't what that, that isn't the piece of data that makes two people different or references them in code as two separate people. So I think that's likely the case. 
is that there are probably a bazillion Rizzos out there, and this person happens to be named Rizzo. Okay. That's what, uh, that's what I'm going with. I'm looking at the first book, and I'm trying to find where he talks about the, the him selecting his name. You could give your Oasis avatar any name you liked as long as it was unique, meaning you had to pick a name that hadn't already been taken by someone else. Your avatar's name was also your email address and chat ID. So you wanted to be cool and easy to remember. Well, then, if assuming that that is the same, then I would say that one of two things happened. Either they picked prime real estate names. lucky. <laughs> got lucky or picked prime real estate names uh, or that rule changed. And it wouldn't surprise me if the rule changed. But that said, we still have the low five. And uh, I, I think it's interesting the way that they, he describes out the characters. Because we're really, what we're really being introduced into and is the things that we loved about Parzival and H and Artie in the last book. That it says these group of friends that, that come together and they have this relationship online. And this is like their golden time, right? And in this book, we recognize that much like Og and Halliday, they had a period of time that was their golden years with, with Kira as well. And that at some point, that sunsetted and their relationships broke. And that happens, I think, like in any, in any relationship. You know, it's, it's, it's rare that you have relationships that extend for a really long period of time. But he sees this group of people and they have the same hope and the same kind of back and forth, sort of loving, jabbing kind of relationship. But they all have this hope. They all have this sort of glimmer, an idea, an ideal for how they're interacting with each other. And this, this conversation about how Lohengrin's going to spend the money. And that is to basically bring all of them together, to, to buy a house, and the, they'll never be poor, they'll never go without, and, and they can all basically just live until they die in this house. And I, I love that. And, it, you know, he even said in here that you know he kind of, you know, teared up a little bit at the thought of these guys kind of doing or being in the place that he longs for now. Because up to this point in the book, Parzival's longing for what he had and almost to the point where you think he wishes that he didn't have that he didn't get the egg that he that he wasn't in the position that he's in now. It's like he got what he wanted, and I don't think he knew what it was that he wanted when he was going for it. He got what he wanted, but didn't realize what he was going to lose yeah. by getting it. Like there was a price to have been paid. Yeah, oh yeah, a huge price. And you know that the book kind of rings of loss. Like that's that's the shards, right? That is a that's sort of the, the price that needs to be paid. Like, what is the price that's paid? Like, so much has already been paid in exchange for the power that he has. He's already received quite a bit of loss, really, in his relationships and kind of in the value of his life. And now we've got these five people who are kind of in a similar position where, you know, he's about to give them a billion dollars and make their dreams come true. Talk about meeting the right friends, right? Yeah. Well, you know, that's, you know, it's all who you know, right? It's always a who we know. Do you have any other takes on this lo-fi group and what do you see in them? Was there any particular, I mean, like choice of their names or anything like that about them that you find particularly interesting that you want to delve into? Oh, it feels like a loaded question, man. Uh, I like that the, the names kind of described who they were. So, you know, you had Rizzo, which obviously is a reference to... Grease Lightning. I'm sorry, the movie Grease. Uh, but also it throws in kind of this this Columbia-esque 
mashup, if you will. And I was like, that's fucking cool. I I enjoyed that part. I I dislike very much Grease. For one, it's a musical, and I hate musicals. Wow, okay. But I'm aware of the character, and I'm pretty sure I've what I've seen of that movie, like, I, I could pick her out of a crowd. Plus, I know what the actress looks like now. Mm-hmm. So, I am much more familiar with Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, I liked the idea of the mashup of Rizzo and Columbia. Like, I can kind of picture that. And I thought that was kind of cool. That it's not just a straight up, right out of the movie Rizzo. Right. Yeah, yeah, and all these characters kind of had some some differences to them. I mean, some less than others, but yeah, I get it. But I just I like the I like the 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 colorful mix up. So I went through and looked at the references for these characters for the based on the names and and how it was described as they looked. And I was like, this is kind of a, a cool group of peeps. It's they're very different from each other, but at the same time they've found sort of some commonality. And again, it kind of harkens back to the high five. And the fact that they had a lot of differences and came around a, a sort of common shared interest. So, no, no, I, I dug it quite a bit. And I'm, what I'm hoping is that we get to follow these characters through the book a little bit. Uh, I know that this is all going to be through the perspective of Parzival. At least I get that feeling. So I don't expect the book to change gears and change perspectives. Uh, in fact, I don't think that it would do that because of the way it started. Because it's it is him, him giving his account of what what happened. But uh, I do want to hear more about him, and I'm hoping that we get to hear more about the low five through the peeping eyes of Parzival, keeping tabs on them or, or watching them from a distance. You're not alone. There are a lot of people that want to hear a lot more about the low five. Oh, see right there. What you're telling me is that the rest of the book is lacking in low five. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that like pe- if people said they wanted more, that means they did not get enough. Well, I mean, you might get that. That's like saying I want to hear more about Art- Artemis's side of the story. That doesn't mean she's not in the book. True enough. True enough. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so so take us to our next point here, because he's, he's in here, he's listening, he's watching. They're obviously conversing about what they're going to do about the money. They don't quite believe that she found the shard. Yeah, so this interaction to me was kind of bizarre, because these are supposed to be close, close friends. And there feels like a lot of, it seems like there's a lack of trust in the group. These are friends that Lohengrin is so close to. Lohengrin is actually willing to buy a house, bring all of these guys over to her house, feed them forever. To me, that that gives a sense of closeness mm-hmm. that... Like there should be a trust. Is like what there should be some trust there. It's like, oh, did, did you find it? Of course I did. Can you send us a screen cap? Okay, that's fine. But if you're talking about people who are in similar dire straits, 
as we will eventually find that Lowen Green currently is. That, that, you know, she's in her own little jet airstream, that she's got a robot servant protecting her, that she is just this waif of a malnourished human under the covers with this headset on. Maybe very little time from a state of, of maybe even deathly malnutrition, right? Uh, these are people who are starving. And what if everyone else is in a similar state? What if that's their commonality, Right. We don't know. We don't know. But, you know, imagine somebody came to you and said, and I'm going to take everything that pains you and I'm going to share a billion dollars with you. Or I found I found the thing that's going to get us a billion dollars. I don't care who you are. Your first thought's going to be bullshit. No way. No way. And somebody else might go, I believe in you. I think I think you're telling the truth. You know, but I think even the closest friend would go, no. No, 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 no. That's impossible. No one else has found it. How did you find it? You know, there would be doubt. Like, I would be asking for proof. I'd be that person. Okay. Even if it was my closest friend. Because you're talking about somebody saying, uh, I'm going to get a billion dollars here soon, folks. It's like, yeah, unbelievable. It's an unbelievable thing. I, I think what, what you're saying is kind of what's happening. It's just that I feel like if I told my closest friends to the point where I like they're my, my family if I told them that I think I found the thing that is going to win me a billion dollars I get a little bit of like ah, no way you're just pulling my leg mm-hmm. but it seems like the well, I want to see some proof I don't believe you like that it just feels childish it's like they're kids they're like 18, 19 years old, they should... Kids! Be, they're kids to us, but... Fine, like young not, adults, but still. And, and on top of that, you're talking about potentially somebody who got something, and, and we're only finding out in this chapter that her plan is to share it. I thought you'd never ask, she replied. First, I'm going to buy a big house for all of us to live together. She's, she's never told them this plan. And it goes from her saying she found something that maybe everyone else was looking for too, and that maybe they don't want to believe she found it, because if she found it, that means that they're not going to get the money, to then her saying, and when I get it, I'm going to do this for everybody. And then everyone's kind of like, oh, well, that's awesome. How cool is that? Now they don't mind so much that she was the one that found it, assuming that she did. That's, that, to me, is how the conversation unfolded. Perhaps. The the one thing that I did kind of take away from this chapter, I mean, at least at this point, was that the only one in this group that seems like a gunter is Lohengrin. Sure. Like, you don't get get any hints at this point whether or not any of them are also hunting for the shard or other, other than their names, you don't really get a sense that they have any built up knowledge of the 80s pop culture that would have been popular when they were in their early teens. Sure. I, I've not yet read anything on... I mean, this is this is the introduction of them. So, you know, for me, all I know is that they went to high school together in the Oasis, and, you know, now they've got these personalities and and these identities, and and one of them, yes, one of them seems to be Gunter-esque. Um, but you know we've I've just not heard anything about the other four yet. I really just do not know. Like there's there's nothing that that speaks to this. Like it was different in the first book where Parzival's like, you know, this is how I met H, and this is what H does, and H H is like you know top tier Gunter all the way. 
Yeah, because he knows about them. Here, we don't know about any of those folks. This is all unfolding before us. All all unfolding before Parzival, even. It just feels like, at least at this point in the book, mm-hmm. that the low five has a stronger proportion of IROX in the group. Like like they like they seem a little posery right now. And that the only one that's an actual Gunter is Lohengrin. And the others are just kind of along for the ride. At least that's the way it comes off right now. Yeah, but we just don't know yet. Well, yeah, and and I gotta think that that this this whole sort of click esque sort of thing I imagine has to have faded to a certain degree. Right? Like his once the egg had been captured there were years. What, why would there be Gunters? There wouldn't need to be. There was no reason to be. To be a Gunter now is just use, utterly useless. There's no point. What are, you, what are you hunting? You're not hunting the egg. So you're not... What's the point of being a Gunter? You can be a Sharter. A Sharter? Sharter. <laughs> and, and that's the next level. And we don't know what these folks know. But I mean, nobody's like touting around and trying to boast their knowledge here. They're just no, doing banter like- amongst friends. Why would a 19-year-old in 2050-ish or 2048, 2049, whatever year it is now, have a name like Rizzo and also have their character be a bit of a mashup with Columbia from Rocky Horror Picture Show? For fun. And for fun? I mean, why else? And wh- and, and why have a name like Castigear, which is a reference to Highlander? Mm-hmm. These are all like pop culture references that would have been in James Halliday's kind of wheelhouse. wheelhouse. Yeah, certainly Highlander. Highlander was was Artemis's favorite movie at the time when she was trying to get the copper key. But both Artemis and Parzival referenced something older than themselves, gods of the hunt. Right, is where Artemis got her name from. So I mean, it. Eh, I understand. I guess but like, maybe I get what you're coming from, but you know. Uh, it, it, sure, because it might still be hip to have those kinds of references. I don't Maybe. know. I guess I should say at this point, I don't know enough about any but anyone but Lohengrin to have a negative perspective to to even go so far as to call them posers. Posers. Yeah, we we're not in a place where I could even make that judgment. I, I'm just saying, like at this point, all you were given is their name and their attitude in this chapter. Sure. And you don't get a sense that any of them are really you know, even bothering to hunt for the one of the seven shards. Well, so there's nothing in this conversation that would give that away because one of the shards has been found. Like they're not they're not playing video games and trying to best each other. I mean, that's not to say that they couldn't. That's just not where they are right now because right now they're having a meeting about the shard. They're having a meeting where Lohengrin is telling them, I think I found something, and, or I found something, and it's going to benefit all of us. Right, Not right. a bad place to be. I, I think it's, it's, it's obviously a different attitude, because the low five are together. Now, we don't know if they're helping each other, but they're together. Like, Parzival, the high five came together only at the end, only when they were forced to realize that they had to lean on each other. These guys are ahead of the curve. They're already leaning on each other. They already have a relationship. They don't need to rely on one-upmanship in order to gain respect, at least not in a, you know the dick-waving contest. That then Arter- why not share? Like, this is where I found it. 
well, I understand. I mean, I don't think they were drilling her for a location. Like, prove it. I will later. Yeah. Well, sure, you know. That makes me think that they're not working together. And maybe not. But at least they're friends. At least they're hanging out together. At least they're talking. I, I think the point of this chapter is really about not really trying to focus on their Gunter-like qualities, because I don't think many of them have that. We don't know at this point. It's re- it's really trying to make a parallel with the friendships yeah. that we saw develop in the first book. And we don't have that history of how that how those came about. Yeah. In the first book, we saw the relationships develop between Artemis and Parzival and Dido and Shoto and Parzival. So we got to see those develop here. We're just, they're already friends and we don't get a peek into their history except that they went to high school together. Right. We, we really get a minimal backstory here. And I'd say the person whom we get the most backstory for here is Lohengrin because we went from respecting Lohengrin and not looking at her personal stuff to just straight up, ah, fuck it. Let's just go and look at our cameras and figure out where her room is and, and what her life looks like. And all the shit that he said in the last chapter that he wouldn't do because he quote unquote respected her or didn't want to ruin the, the facade that he had come to enjoy. I really love the part where <laughs> he says, I stood there for a few seconds, staring down at her avatar, pretending to wrestle with my conscience. Then I went ahead and pulled up Lohengrin's private account profile to find out her real-world identity. I justified violating her right to privacy as an Oasis user the way I always did, by telling myself it was necessary. <laughs> I love the part where he says, i pretending to wrestle with my conscience. Love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I mean, it's, it's like, I'm going to put on this little show for the audience of me. If you're about to give, say, if you're about to give a billion dollars to someone, are you, you, are, are you not going to do some background? I mean, employers do more background research than he just did, and they ain't giving away a billion dollars to employees. So, I mean, I, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. Is it the, right? The, the thing no. is, is that he, uh, and this is one of those things that hurts me in these chapters is that we're we're hearing about this really dark side of GSS mm-hmm. and that he can do all these things that based on the first book you didn't think was even possible because you know they talk about you know user rights and you know your data is private and you know there were lawsuits you know trying to that they fought and won to keep that data private. And while they can, they seem to put a value on the privacy, yet their their philosophy as well, we can still spy on you. We can look at the cameras on your O&I and see like what your house looks like. We can see what you, you can see whatever the hell you're doing. It's just, GSS is getting creepy and not likable. I understand it from both perspective, both perspectives, because when somebody is using your system, GSS does not belong to the people. It's not like a government where they elect people into into power in GSS, right? Um, where they might have a a word into privacy. GSS is it. 
It's a monopoly. They're the only one you can go to. Now, they may not take your information and sell it, but if you are using someone else's system, and this is true for any social media you use, Facebook, Twitter, it doesn't matter. They know who you are. They know what you've done. They know where you've gone. It's in a database or a log somewhere. It's, it's there to be found. I think GSS has evolved way beyond a social media platform or a game. It's a commodity. Sure. Sure. But it's, so, it's still and, a company that provides it. I mean, that's, you're still using someone else's service. If you're presenting yourself as, as a commodity that's going to protect your private data. From others. From others, does that does that does that mean that they're are you knowingly giving a if you're not if they're going to be able to look at your data and do things with it? Generally speaking, you're accepting terms and conditions for using a product. Mm -hmm. And as Parzival says in this chapter, if people knew the stuff that they could do, there would be lawsuits, there would be riots. So. He's doing, they're doing things with this information and this access that they know they're not supposed to be able to do. And if people knew that they were doing it, they would be pissed. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And I think that'd be true about any company. But the fact of the matter is, whenever you use somebody else's service, anticipate, anticipate that they are not keeping your information private from themselves. They may keep it private from everyone else. They might even push back against the government when the government comes to them and says, here's a court order that says, give me info about this person. But rarely do you have a company that's keeping it from themselves. Well, it's one of the reasons why I like Apple to a certain extent, because at least Apple said, look, we, we create our devices to be private. We can't backdoor our own devices. We won't backdoor our own devices because they backdoor there's no such thing as a secret. Secrets don't exist, right? Uh, and no back door is a secret. Not for very long. Not for long at all. So you just don't create them. And bada bing, bada boom, there you go. Not even Apple can reset that phone or get into that phone. So, so they say. Well, well so they say. Uh, and again, <laughs> it depends on how far you trust them. And, and you know, like any corporation, you where there are conflicting interests, you probably shouldn't trust. What it all comes down to, at least in my mind, is, you know, people are, you know, fans of Apple or fans of Google, and they all say, well, you can't trust them, but I trust what I use. And it's like, it, it comes down to you're picking which one you're willing to trust. Well, you're really, yes. What you're doing is you are, well, there is also a history. There, There is a certain degree of technical spec to it if you review that. But what you're not doing is you're not asking, whom do I trust? What you're asking is, given the information and what I know about my, our aligned interests and the risk to reputation of the business, who stands the most to lose? Should privacy be, you know, stepped on? Should should it be privacy be weaker than, you know, the cutting edge methods for breaking privacy? And on top of that, if if part of your selling the product is that your product is secure, then that puts your the reputation your reputation for security on the forefront. And the question then is, okay, well, if it turns out that they're lying, and they could be, but if it turns out that they're lying, then that is a huge deal. They're basically hurting their brand. And that's what I'm saying is going on here is that I think GSS 
has to be and promoting that they're keeping their users data private and that there's an expectation of privacy that whatever you do with your thing is is on you and Parzival, as the head of this company now, recognizes that if people knew what was going on, they would be upset. They'd be a little TO'd. You know, I, I have to tell you, I think that's I think that would be the case for any business that's online today. You know, you, you go in and you use their service, and then it's surprising that they know everything about the service that you're using and th- that what you've done with the service that you're using. I don't have to tell you. It's an unrealistic unrealistic expectation. It's one thing to say that they're going to take that data and they, and they know what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? But oftentimes that data is, is anonymized, but it's like finding out that this little camera on my laptop, when the light is not on... Mm-hmm. And it's showing somebody video on the other end, even though, and as far as I know, it's not on. There's a reason why people put tape on their... Yeah, I do. On their, uh, yeah. I have little privacy screens for all my webcams because I don't know. No, I, I get it. So I think GSS is playing a little bit of a game of chicken with their lack of actually being genuine about their privacy. And it seems like it's only Parzival that can do it. Maybe. Because he refers to the fact that the the robes of Anorak give him this ability. Well, Og also had similar abilities. But I don't think Og could go into people's O&I headset feed and see their cameras and look around their apartment. Well, we don't know the extent, right? Because obviously the book doesn't get into it. But he obviously had the power to walk into somebody's private chat room and be invisible, albeit able to bump into shit. He had the ability to kill people on command and resurrect them if he wanted to. And he had some pretty high level of shit. So who knows? Who knows? It's not written into the book. Who knows? Yeah, I get it. I, I think the gist here is there is a hope that that you're not... There's a hope in any any software, any any system that you use where you're dependent on somebody else to provide the service, that they will not specifically target you and make decisions uh, about you that affect you immediately, right? That that is that's kind of the hope. Not so much that if I turn off Facebook, that the camera is still on in some way, right? That's a that's not what we're talking about because. He's not talking about monitoring them while their O&I headsets off. He's talking about monitoring and accessing them while they're in the system. While they're in the system, he owns. So, again, not super surprising. Uh, And it is not at all unusual for select individuals to have heightened access to systems within a business. So, even if he's the only one that he can do it, can kind of, you know, again, not surprising. Not surprising at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see where people might have an issue. I think if people actually knew everything that Facebook's doing and that Google's doing and a number of other com- companies are doing, they'd probably be more freaked out than they currently are in using those services. More than likely. Yeah. Anyway. He's being a creep and he's yeah. he's checking out Lohengrin and seeing that, you know, she's basically malnourished and... And just not in a good way. And alone. 
I see a lot of uh, motivation to want to win a billion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of starts to segue into his information about her and the fact that she was designated male at birth. And he kind of moves into that whole sort of sexual identity thing, that uh, zero gender uh, alignment wherein a person can not specify one or the other and that using the ONI has really opened up uh, an understanding that, quite simply put, finding love however you find love is more important than the gender of the love that you find. That now there's enough exposure and enough experiences that you can interact with or that you can ride through using ONI that it can potentially blur those lines where it doesn't matter anymore. That you can kind of be kind of on the in-between or maybe even metasexual, if you will. Uh, and I thought this was a really interesting and sort of eye-opening part of the book. I was like, this is kind of an interesting thing to put in here that that this kind of technology would have the ability to slant a person's take on the socializing of gender to a point where you know you could you could walk in another person's shoes and and experience their gender through their eyes. And as a result, you know, you're taking that information in, you're feeling those feelings, you're perceiving those actions, and you're adding it to your own storyline. And it's really kind of, you know, forming you as a, a, a new and slightly different person through those experiences uh, to the point where you could potentially change your mind quite easily on, on this sort of thing. Between... Random blog entries, Twitter, Facebook. There was a lot of talk about this chapter and th these few paragraphs in particular. And what do you say about that? You just don't. Yeah. Or you drag yourself into it. Yeah. When it came to, the, to those threads, I was the guy eating popcorn and watching <laughs> everybody else have their arguments. Right. Right. Because... Yeah, you know, like sometimes I'm going to be that guy. Yeah. You know, at the very least, you can say if this was the case that the chapter opened up conversations. And while not all of them may have been polite for reasons we've talked about, there may have been a number of points that permeated a number of individuals to either solidify or change opinions or, or ways of thinking about the subject. And you know, I think the greatest thing that an artist can do is to produce material that provokes people into conversation. And if this if this did that, then maybe it you know pushed. Hopefully, it moved the needle a little bit in a positive way. Even if there were some, even if there were negative comments. Anyways, and closing on this, I was disappointed by the the visceral negativity and not trying to focus on the the positive aspects of what he was trying to do. Which is funny because that's what this chapter is about. It's really about the low five and and more importantly, Lohengrin's positive outlook and the fact that this idea of choosing not to listen to the haters, but to focus on the positive things because it's just too easy to come up with negative shit. It's just too easy to pick shit apart. It's harder to try and find and embrace and exemplify the better things, the good things, the positive points. Everybody wants to latch onto the negative. So it's just, you know, ironic that in a chapter where this sort of philosophy is is proposed by one of the characters that's in question here, 
uh, that people would, you know, fall into that realm of of doing exactly the opposite, which is just picking it apart and looking for the negative. Which is, I think, the risk anybody who's in a creative field is they're, they're taking on that risk. Yeah. If you're an artist who likes to paint, some people are going to like your work. Some people are going to hate it. Gosh, you know, if people if people hate your work, more importantly, it's if people talk about your work, like that's what's important. If you're driving conversations, they may not be the conversations you hoped for, but they may be positive conversations. There may be like a positive result that comes out of those conversations. Sometimes making a mistake in art that drives those kinds of conversations, even if they are vitriol from a, a number of people, can be the best thing because it makes the community ch- talk about it and that, that adds value to the content. Well, I mean, I mean, think about the so you talk about adding value to something that's being argued about. The value of the six Dr. Seuss books that have been pulled by the publisher, you can't buy those on Amazon without spending a few thousand dollars. Right. That that's an extreme example, but you know. Yeah, I've not even. No, it's not. I don't think that's extreme at all. I and again, it's yeah. That's that's rough, and I'm not a hundred percent sure what it was in those books that that was the reasoning for them being pulled. I've not dove deep into the research, and I, I eventually will. But the trouble I have here with trying to wipe out history because you don't want to see it is that it's history, and you you it it needs to be somewhere for you to be reminded. And case in point, I, I live in Tennessee. And across the South, you know, there is this huge hubbub about pulling down statues. Now, that said, I am very much in favor of pulling down statues that were used as a means of of basically telling people during a period of time where they were trying to find equality by basically saying, we're going to put these statues up to remind you that while by law you may seem equal, you're not. And a majority of the statues that we're talking about that are really controversial, they weren't put up in a time where they were honoring a person mistakenly and now they're not honorable. No, those statues, a majority of those were put up during a time where people were trying to get equality. And it was meant to be a reminder that they're not equal. But in pulling down those statues, I also think it's important that that kind of shit needs to go to a museum. That that needs to go to a place where we can say, yeah, that's not great, but here it is. And here's the real reason why it was put up and when it was put up and the period of time that it was put up. Here's the context. And this is the reason why it's now in a museum and not outside. Does that make sense? Look, you're talking to somebody who spent a week in Poland visiting concentration camps and Holocaust sites. Yeah. There's a reason why you don't tear down history so you can learn from it. Yeah. Yes, but you shouldn't. But my guess is is that when you went there, they weren't celebrating it. They weren't treating it as an ideal. Correct. It was. They weren't honoring it. It. it I mean, like all. I mean, all these sites are essentially museums at this point. Yeah. And they're meant to teach you about what happened there, and with the ultimate goal of making sure that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah. You. You. So. In regards to those books and, and potentially other sort of subjects like that, uh, I get that the publisher would no longer want to publish them. 
They don't want to be in a position where they're printing it anymore. But I would certainly hope that of what was published, that it remains so that we can use it as an example of how far we've come. And also a reminder of why we don't do that anymore. And an example of how something harmless, such as those books, actually had ingrained within it certain ideals that really were harming a people and we just didn't realize it. And again, I've not researched why these books were pulled, but I, I got to assume that they're kind of in that vein. Yeah, I, I was trying to find images showing like what people were calling out in these books. None of the articles I could find were going to show you anything showing any of that. So, you know, my five minutes of spare time were up at that point. So totally get it. So I, so I don't quite like I, I'm in no position to be able to judge those pieces, you know, under that lens at this point. Right. So then back to the book that we can judge. Yeah. Back to that book. Yeah. So Parsifal is in the room with her. She comes out of her chat room becomes very apparent because she begins to walk towards him. And in this moment, he decides not to step out of her way, but rather fold his arms and assume the ominous wizard pose. Wizard! And then makes his avatar visible once again. End scene. End scene. And this is that place in the book where I'm like, darn it! And I can't go on to the next chapter until we talk about it. So, I know we just kind of wrapped up this chapter, but there's a few things that I would have loved to have talked about in this chapter that... uh, I do want to make sure we mention. Sure. So there's this dialogue between Lilith and Lohengrin when they're talking about trying to make sure that Parzival doesn't just try to screw Lohengrin over. Mm-hmm. Lilith says, hold on. What's to stop Parzival from taking it and, and teleporting away without paying you a dime? Parzival would never do that, Lohengrin said. He's a righteous dude. Ha! Now, he's a righteous dude. When I read that, all I could hear in my head was the scene in Ferris Bueller where the secretary is talking to Ed Rooney about Ferris Bueller. He's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. That has to be that reference. Wouldn't surprise me. That, that, sounds, about, that sounds spot on. What else did you run into? What else did you notice? What what did we skip over? Let's see. There was a reference to simoleons, which was the unit of currency in Sim City, which I might have played once or twice in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really kind of odd to hear that. What else do I got here? So they all went to school at OPS one one two six. I tried to see what I could find about those numbers that was of any significance, and the best I could find was. I believe there's a sushi restaurant in Columbus called 1126. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'd, I'd obviously, say you're reaching, but we've, it's a reach. we've, we've reached and come up. We've reached further and come up with interesting things. So, hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I also really enjoyed that Lohengrin's Okagami swap bot is apparently used to do more than just the dishes. That was a good line. Well, yeah, because it's got a shotgun strapped on its back. Yeah. Well, that he was noticing the sawed-off shotgun and said, obviously, uh, she used it to do more than just the dishes. I, I thought that was funny. I did also find it interesting that 
she can afford one of these swap bots, has a channel that with a whole lot of subscribers, but is still suffering from malnutrition. So either her Oasis bills are really high and can't keep up with potential income streams that she has with her subscriber base. And I was a little bit like, really? She, you know, not not doing better about the food intake there? Just saying. But then again, you know, there's a thousand reasons why somebody who even has semi-reasonable income stream might not be able to make ends meet as far as, uh, or not be able to be properly nourished. Well, okay. So here's what we know is that she has a, what was, what was the, the type of mobile home that she's got? She has a, was it a jet stream or? I don't know if we know what the, her. Anyways. She, she, she's in a stack. She's in a stack. Right. And arguably a worse stack than, than he grew up in. Right. And her mom died. So her mom's been out of her life for a few years. So for all we know, Everything she's got, she didn't earn. And she's only 19. It could be that her being on her own, even with a semi-reasonable income stream from her subscriber base or whatever like that, that might just be what it takes to make the rent. Well, I wouldn't you know, even like, assume that just because you have a big subscriber stream that that you're making a lot of money. I mean, in the other book, maybe... If you have a million subscribers on YouTube, for instance, mm-hmm. your ad revenue can't be nothing. I don't ever remember them talking about ever ad revenue. That's not they made money if they made money from sponsors. Could be. Right? They they made money from people paying to promote their, their technology. But, you know, there's a rational reason why she would be poor even if she had a robot that was doing the dishes. Yeah. You know, and she's young. So, its skill base is still evolving there. But kudos to Lowengrin for having her swap bot be prepared. Yeah. Hacked to protect. Yeah. Hack the planet. Hack the planet! So I'm not sure I really had much else going on here of any significance with any analysis in this chapter, but or we learn a lot, but we there's not a lot to really dissect. Yeah. I don't think. Well, it sounds like we've... It seems like we've reached the end of it. Are you ready to wrap it up? I think so. Yeah. I think we're ready to wrap it up. Well, folks... Until we can record about the next chapter, that is going to be what I do next, almost immediately after I hang up the headset. And with that, this is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Get to the Good Part. See you. After he's realized that she's engaged, he tries to see where she is and notices that she... Let me start this over again. I don't really... Cut. 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 Like, there was a price to have been paid. Oh, yeah. A huge price. And it's... I had a 